everybody. This is Insa'a. I am hosting tonight. It's been a while since I've been on this side of the microphone. And we are sitting here. This is Coffee and Poets, a live recording of interviews with local poets every third Sunday of the month right here at Nicket Lounge on 11th and H, which we call Coffee and Poets. But right now, both of us have tea. So I guess it's more like tea and poets at well, this I, moment. I had my coffee for the week. I try not to do coffee every day. Right. <laughs> for the week. I can't do it every day now. Come on. All right. So we're going to get into some questions with Vincent um, Corbelt. So I am going to ask Vincent a mm-hmm. couple of questions to get um, a bearing, a base of where we're going with this conversation. And so let's get this started. Vincent Cobelt, what is it like being a poet? Wow. Um, I think that, that a poet is someone that, at least I can only I can speak for myself, someone that is present, you know. There's someone that likes to really taste something, like the gratuitous moment, like really taste every second. There's so many different ways uh, to look at poetry. So for me as a poet, I like to be present uh, in my life, right? And it's not, we find poems right. as we go. We discover poems uh, through found conversations. We find them by um, dream logs. We get ideas for poems. And so what we do is we write and we scribble things down. And then we try to polish things that we've scribbled down. And then finally, uh, the third step would to be actually have something that's presentable on the mic or presentable on the page. So it starts off for me with a scribble. I scribble something down. It's an idea that I have about what could be a poem or a thought of what could be a poem. And then I kind of relive that piece, being gratuitous, going back to it, right? And being true to it and to get it to that right place. Right, right, right. So what inspires you to write? I mean, what... What is that one thing that you find yourself coming back to? I mean, is, do you? Wow. I mean, what is the, what is the inspiration for your for your art form? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think that it depends where we where we are in our life. Um, I think the first step for me was trying to find my voice. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a beautiful thing, and when we get sparks of that. I remember sometimes I, I, I would write. I wouldn't share it with anybody as, as a teenager. But we get sparks of our own voice because we have so many messages, so many subliminal messages all over the place telling us this is how we should be. Right. And then we get clues. It's like, well, that's not how I feel. Mm-hmm. Everyone's telling me that you should do this. And then you do that. And, this, this is, and then you, you get your career and this will complete you. But sometimes that doesn't feed us. It doesn't make us happy. And we realize, well, there, got, there has to be more than life just from A to B to C. Right? Uh, graduate from high school. Go to college. Get your diploma. Start your career. And that's it. That's your life. So, so did, you, did you take that path? No, for me, um, that's not that wasn't the path for me. I, I I took the path of what I wanted to do, and 
um, I wanted to leave inner city San Francisco. Mm. And, and that's how I got to this area. With, it's not too far from San Francisco, but still, I didn't want to go to college at San Francisco City College or at SF State. I wanted a new adventure for myself. And so the, a change of scenery, I figured I'd learn more about myself that way and learn more about the world. It just felt, it felt right for me to leave. And so that's what I did. And, um, and I went on my journey. Okay. You know, I went, I went to school for a couple of years and then I left school and I was, um, I was with my mother who's from the Caribbean and I left and lived with her, my mother and my brother, the three of us went, um, to, um, an island called St. Martin. Okay. And that was what I, what I felt was right, uh, for me. And that part of that for me was being a poet. It's not the path. For everybody, right? But it was the path for me, right? <laughs> so, so when when did when did you know that you was when did you first know that you was a poet? You know, it's uh, wow. I, like I said, we we had uh, sparks of um, sparks of my own voice, like things that would come to me. Like I remember specifically one time, I was on the train, and I felt intense. I don't know, not in a negative way. But I'm on the train by myself, and I'm seeing these um, blank walls. And it felt like the blank walls were talking to me, you know, and they were like, write a poem for me. And so I wrote a poem called She Stuck on That Bad Muralist from the Mission. It was like the wall was telling me that she was in love with an artist, Mm. and she wanted the artist to paint her. And she said, write that poem for me. And it was, I don't know how, how else to describe it, but... So when did it, you first know about poetry as an art form? I mean, when did you first know? I didn't know, know what it was called. I didn't know. I remember that I was in this middle school. And this day, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was in this middle school. And in this middle school in San Francisco, there was so many of our teachers had left. So many of our teachers left the school. And... The kids have taken over. I remember specifically one day we had a substitute by the name of Mr. Green. Mr. Green came in with his green suit and a bow tie. And here, here we were, um, blacks, Mexicans, Samoans, Filipinos in the school, and we're just all listening there to him. And he turns around and he begins to write his objective for the day. And he writes the date. But he made a mistake. One of the kids, Jeremiah, picked up a book and he hurled the book across the room. Bam! It hit Mr. Green in the back of the head and his forehead hit the chalkboard. Oh, my God. And he was so mad, he turned around and he slammed his fist as hard as he could against the desk. Who threw the book? I want to know who threw the book. And everybody, we were just quiet, you know, quiet as church mice. The next thing you know, um, Jeremiah got up. You know, and he, he was a big Samoan kid. He pointed at this Mexican kid named Luis. He said, Luis did it, you know. And then he looked at to Luis, and Luis didn't say anything. So he storms off and says, I'm going to get the principal. The next thing you know, Jeremiah and Luis jumped out the window. We were on the first floor. Okay. And they were gone. They never came back. Mr. Green, we never saw him again. So that was, that was one. I had so many different substitutes, but... I said that, I was saying this to get to this other substitute 
who took an interest. He had a creative oh, writing assignment. Okay. And he said, you're a poet. And wow. I, I don't know, I had that substitute. He wasn't my teacher. Wow. We might have had him for three days. And he said, you're a poet. You need wow. to write. And from that, I kept that to myself. And I, I, I was, I've been writing secretly at, at wow. that time. For my, wow. as what, a age teenager. That? what age was um, that? That had to be sixth or seventh grade. So I was 12 or 13 years old. Wow. Yeah. And that, wow. that stayed with me. When he said that, I always, it would stay I always with you. loved to write. Yeah. Uh, yeah he it said, would it stay. was there so much impact. You're right. Even though it he wasn't our teacher you. and the right. teacher's left. Just Somebody to, take, to see a talent that you had right there. That's exactly. that. That's that spirit of discernment, you know. Exactly. You'd be like, oh, you you you're an artist, or you yeah, know. exactly. You're an artist, and that's you know. And and I think that that's a huge thing mm-hmm. when it's not just about you know. I think teachers is not it's not only about teaching. That's right. It's not just about A, B, C, or D. No, you're trying to help your student find themselves. Right. And so that they can carry that sense of self throughout their whole life. And right. that that is huge. And to actually be, it's a gift. You know, it's when somebody gift. give you that as a gift, because I remember I had the same experience, but I was older. Right. And the, the person said, you're a graphic designer. You know, he mm. looked at all the work. He said, you always doing this. You're doing this all the yeah. time. And, you know, you're just doing this on your free time. You don't even know what you're doing. With you, what's powerful with you is that, Somebody actually told you what the art form was. Right. You know, because when I was growing up, I didn't know what poetry was. I only knew rap. That's all I knew. Right. And so when you, want, when you want to write, you write a rap. And I didn't find that out till later. So when somebody at 12 years old can give you that gift and let you know <laughs> what art form, you know what I'm trying to say? Exactly. That you are doing, yeah. you know, and that's a huge gift. And it goes to elders and, and people, you know, actually taking their position seriously, that you are a shepherd in a way. And, right. You know, so um, so would you like to share with us a poem? I'm going uh, to start off with this piece. I don't know. It's the one that came up here. This is a piece that I wrote um, like when I first came uh, to UC Davis, and there was a lot of issues going on with diversity. And this is what came out. I titled it, O Riving Color. When racism became hot pan on a Eurocentric stove, we became fresh beef patties sizzling in disgust. So if your throat gets stung with pain, as if an angry wasp was buzzing within your Adam's apple, don't become discouraged. For if you get too hot with racism beating against your skin, the trees will provide the shade. If you get bitter with rage, my brothers, solidarity will supply the fruit. And if you ever get thirsty for love, my sisters, the rivers will provide the water. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, that was awesome. That was yeah. one of the pieces. Yeah. We were going through a lot of different things, and I think we're still dealing with a lot of that. But what we have to remember as well, too, is that we have to be conscious of it, but then we have to realize there's forces that can feed us greater than racism mm. so that we don't become so discouraged Right. So, so are you, self-destructive. Uh, are you are you one of the poets that 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 feel like you have a mandate or a calling to speak to social issues, or are you just is it just just that art form? You know, do you uh, feel like you you have a responsibility to? Yeah, the thing for with me is some people are against that. Yeah, I'm not against it, 
because sometimes this is the way I feel sometimes. Right. Now, to say that I always have to do it as an artist, I'm not, I, I'm not for that. Mm-hmm. But to say that poets can't, I'm against people saying that poets can't talk about serious issues of the day. Right. That, right. that for me is like, um, I don't go for that. That's a do not enter sign for me. I'm like, no, we need to go there when we feel we need to go there. Right. Okay. I, I, think, I think it's perfectly fine. For poets to explore social issues, I think that's I think that's perfectly fine to explore that. Okay, so um, let's let's talk about our poetry and music. Oh yes, okay, poetry and music. So um, I know you with the group Call for Shame. That's right. Right. That's right. You you've been on uh, um, TV a couple of times. Oh, yeah. I see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I see. I seen you on TV a couple of times, and. Um, so what is that like? When did you first come to the realization that, you know, poetry, music, right. bam. Yeah. And th- I know. think that that was, that took me a little bit because I was just simply writing my poetry and reading my poetry. What happened is that once I did that and also I was also influenced by others. Let's say that... um um, I have a friend that you know, Mario Ellis Hill. Right. And um, Mario, at first, w- wasn't into poetry. Uh, intru- I introduced him to, to poetry. Really? Right? Introduced oh. Mario to, to poetry. But what Mario did is that Mario started doing his poetry with the band. Oh. Right? He, Called the Free Association. Oh, okay. And I was like, wow. He's really good at that, too. Yo, he's, he's awesome at that. Yeah, I can't do and, that. Yeah. Yeah, and I was like... I was like, wow, you, you can do that. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> he took and what you like, gave you like, and he, like, oh, he took okay, what you then. gave you and he supersized it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He supersized it. I was like, okay, wow, you can do that. So but still though, that was I, I, I didn't get into it at that point. Right. Um I left to LA because I, I had a family and um um and my journey led me up and down California. Mm-hmm. So uh when I finally got back up to uh Sacramento I, you know, started exploring different things with with poetry and music. Mm-hmm. So what I what I learned is it's not every poem that goes with the musician, mm-hmm. but it taught me how to enunciate uh, yeah. better. Yeah. So there's things that the music can teach you, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it's different ways to say a word. There are just different ways, the tones and the moods and, and words and how and, we say yeah. things. So I think that it was just part of my growth, right? Right, to explore poetry with music, and so I'm more aware of sound. Mm. And what I realized too is that this is also part of our tradition. And I had been looking at poetry. Um, I mean, I never really like followed strictly uh, the Western tradition of this is how you um, should write poetry. I kind of write wrote the way I felt and the way things, the way I thought. And it kind of just came out organically like that. But what I realized when I did some of my research and read into it, I believe that it's part of our tradition. Um, Like the griots in Africa, right? And um, poets, um, indigenous poets in Hawaii, that they actually did read their poems before the community with music. Hmm. So it was like a, a rediscovering of ourselves in a way. And this is what we wanted to do. We were like, wow, this is, this is great. And so there, there we have it. That's how I started the journey um, 
with music, watching Mario with the uh, Free Association. Right. And then, you know, we, we had all listened to um, Gil Scott Heron. Yeah. So we knew that he was like the forefather of rap. Right. And so we wanted to dig deep and to remember things that we have forgotten because things had become so crazy mm. in the inner city. Right. We had three different things happening at one time. The explosion of crack cocaine, HIV, AIDS, and the renaissance of gangsterism, right? Mm. And with these three forces eating away at our communities, it left us in almost a schizophrenic space, right? So what, so what do, had to what do back. artists to do? Yeah, we had to dig back to find out, well, where were we? And to, re, to relook and say, where, where should we go? So I think we're still think, reeling from those things. Okay, do you think that, so, so the artist's response to all those things happening, do you think it was, do you think that the artist was trying to find a, a space of stability for the community, or, or what, was they, what, what, were their, what was their message that they were trying to get across um, with, or was they just railing against the times, you know, right. is that... Is that what you think that was going on at the time? Because, yeah. you, like you said, you have all these different forces coming at you at once. I, all of these forces. A perfect storm, in a way. A perfect storm. Right. And I, I, I still think that uh, we're still reeling from, from, from that, you know, from the crack cocaine epidemic, the HIV AIDS epidemic, and like your yeah. poem that you have, um, Make the Thug. Right. So, Right. And so we have these forces that try to turn young black men and young brown men into thugs. Mm-hmm. And we're fighting that as well mm-hmm. because our thirst, was to, our thirst was to kind of widen our minds and to get more out of life and not to, not to get caught up in, you know, in drugs, to get caught up in all of the little things that, that hold us back. Right. And poetry was an avenue for me to be real with myself, to find out like we were at the what's this, the naked lounge mm-hmm. for me to get naked with myself. Right. So to see, <laughs> hey, what do I think? What uh-huh. do I feel uh-huh. without any of the other forces of society telling me how to think? Right. So I, and I think that what happens is it, it seems that there's even less and less spaces for people to have that free thought. Mm. We're supposed to communicate more with the Internet and with the cell phone. But are we really communicating more? Are we really communicating? Mm-hmm. And that's a question. We're always looking for answers, but who's going to ask the questions mm-hmm. for our day? Right. We have to have people who are asking the questions, mm-hmm. right? And this is where we are. And I don't think the media does a serious job anymore mm-hmm. of either asking those questions or reporting the real news. Like, for instance... Um, when I when we we came back, what was it was th- three weeks ago uh, when I I teach at uh, in Stockton, North Stockton, and I kept hearing the kids say Ebola, Ebola, and you know Africa, you know where's Ebola from Africa, and so this week I paused, you know, and I said, well, we got, I asked them a question about Ebola, and they said, well, it's it's in Africa. I said, but which country in Africa? Mm-hmm. Right. And right. as I said, Africa is a continent. Right. 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 But it just shows you what they got from the media, mm-hmm. the fear of Ebola. I said, is Ebola here? Right. Ebola is not here in the United States. And then I drew a picture of um, 
I tried my best. You know, I don't have Lawrence's skills. I tried my <laughs> best to draw the continent, and I, I drew where Ebola was. And I said, look at this little small area where Ebola is. Now, is it is in Mozambique, Zimbabwe, South Africa? No, it's not there. And I said, it's, it's my job to kind of like point that out to you guys. Mm. You guys are saying Ebola, but it's not even here. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not even in most of Africa. If you live in this little small area, maybe you're freaking out there. Right. You, yeah. constantly, you guys big are constantly way. saying Ebola. Right. Right. You're, you're freaking me out. <laughs> <laughs> They're freaking me out. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. anyway, it's, it's things like that. It's like it shows you the power of the media, mm. what they're being fed. Right. The images that they're being fed. And they, they start thinking a certain way because of the way they're fed. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so poetry was a way for me to feed myself differently right. from things that just didn't speak to me. And I think that, that that's the thing. It's like when you get a spark of your voice, it's like, is this how I'm going to sound at 26? Oh, I, I mean, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like you, you get an idea of like, wow, man, that, this, this, is, this, is, this is what I love. Mm. You know, figuring out how I think. You know, what I love. Right? No one can tell me what I love. I have to kind of figure explore out it, those yeah. things and yeah. explore it for myself. Right. Yeah. You know, I can't it's look true. to Oprah to find that. Right. I can't right. look to Maury to find it. Right. You know, I have to look to myself mm. to find those things. Right. It's true. It's true. So poetry is an um, ancient form of communication. So do you, right. have, do you have another poem that you want to share with us to communicate? Oh, yeah. <laughs> to communicate with us. Yeah, let me, um, this is a poem called um, After the Rain. Okay, this is a poem I wrote. Um, well, I'm going to dedicate it to Nelson Mandela. After the rain had fallen, and um, the group Lady Smith Black Mambozo from South Africa have a song that they sing called Rain, 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 Beautiful Rain, hmm. and they're talking about freedom. Okay. They said rain never, has never come here like in the last hundred years, because we've been living in apartheid. Mm -hmm. So that's the power of the metaphor. So, after the rain had fallen, falling, falling fell from the well of the sky, the rain had finally come, that beautiful rain. Hear the sound of thirsty ground sucking up the fallen sky water molecules, that freedom rain. And so there was a jubilation in the ground after the rain had fallen. Gray clouds made way for mighty rays of light energy to feed the hungry environment. And the lips of the earth blew a voluptuous kiss to I, Poppy Sun Man. After the rain had fallen, there was an uproar of joy pumping through the veins of thirsty ground. Hear the sound of tree roots drinking, drinking, drank the last wave of fallen rain. Tree roots like dreadlocks. Sucking up the rain. After the rain had fallen, a charged current of jubilation flowed through the ground and was transmitted with good reception by the roots of plant and tree nations. It tickled the grass, made the flowers scream and shout, oh yeah. Made the trees stretch their branches, reach out and kiss the sky. Then newborn chirping buds sprouted from out the trees and smothered their branches with prolific purple hickeys, and it made the bushes shake. They shook and wiggled their hips, getting down as positive vibrations 
flowed with jubilation on through every last cell of their recharged bodies. And then I started feeling good, feeling a sensation of thanksgiving for the rain that had fallen, fallen from the well in the sky, thanksgiving for the rain that had fallen and quenched the thirst of the ground and filled our environment with celebration. Hear the sound of grass and plants sipping on puddles of accumulated raindrops. After the rain had fallen, the ground, trees, plants, insects, weeds, and worms rejoiced in their wet habitat. Black rain, blue rain, sweet rain, Mozambique, Botswana, Zimbabwe rain, Lesotho, Soweto, Johannesburg rain, rain falling, falling fell from the well of the sky, that freedom rain. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's a piece that um uh, was influenced, like I said, by Lady Smith, Black Mambozo from their uh, rain song. And um, I thought it was a good metaphor for freedom. Right. And, and but it, and it also was a combination, too, of um, just um, learning some some things from some Native American poets that I that I had read and. And how they view how they view nature, as well. And and I think too something that we've forgotten during like the Thanksgiving month. I can remember as a kid during Thanksgiving month, I used to see images of Indians, but we in November we cut straight to Christmas. Yes, you know yes. we don't see any images of Indians anymore right. for yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah. And I think that um that's something that we've forgotten. You know. It's 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 very complicated, right? That thing. Of, it's very it's very complicated, yeah, but something that we can't forget. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. It's something that we can't forget. How do we keep that in our memory to realize? Well, the, the way the Indians took the Puritans in, right? And what they shared, and they shared corn, mm-hmm. and they shared tomatoes. Turkeys come from Mexico, yeah. You know, and yeah. and all of these different things are gifts from the Americas. And if we call ourselves African American poets, American poets. What not? American is still in there. Mm-hmm. And so the, the journey of American poet, if you look at the history, it doesn't start with the European. Right. Then we have to give our indigenous brothers some love and learn a little bit about their po- poetic traditions because we're living in environments where they took care of these places for thousands of years. Mm. You know, and they took really good care of America. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> they lived well on the land. So in, anyway, so that also is... I, you know, it's not in the poem. I don't say that explicitly, but that's there. So that's my Thanksgiving poem is, you know, let's remember some of the Pequots, Poconoit, the Narragansett, mm. you know, they were there. Right. And they had their traditions. And I think that we forget that. Yeah, because we, I think a lot of times, too, the thing about urban poetry that I like is that, and I hear a lot in your pieces, is that you try to pull other cultures into into the poem, and I like that too as well. I mean, have you wrote a poem in the midst of researching the poem actually come upon new knowledge? Yes, exactly. Um, there's a piece that, that I'm writing, I don't think it's quite done, where I, I was reading this book called 1491, actually. And um, this was like the Americas you know, before 1492. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about exactly that, about corn. And oh, how, how what they did is is that they took 
a wild grass called teosinthine and mixed it. Mm-hmm. So it was like the first great um, chemical engineering, if, mm-hmm. you, if you will. You right, know? right. And they were able to feed thousands of people. That technology went north mm-hmm. and it went south. So it went through the Mayans, through the Incas. And you think about where corn is, it's all over. And you think about something like um, um, there's, a, there's a root called um, juca. And we call it manioc. Yeah, manioc and juca. But it makes the, the tapioca seed, right? It's called cassava, too. The three names, it's all over the world. It's, it, it went to Africa, you know. They so exported it's everywhere. And then potatoes, too. It's like potatoes. Oh, yeah. I, I think of the Irish, but potatoes yeah, but is. It's from not South indigenous. America. Yeah, it's not indigenous to yeah, I mean, the they, Irish. Yeah, yeah. They have so much diversity Ireland. in South America. Yeah. With, yeah. You know. Um, so yeah, this, you was learning new stuff yeah, from... Yeah, we learned these new stuff, and, and the reason, too, is like, um, you know, there's that thing, and like, I, I'm teaching the middle school kids sometimes, and I, I have two daughters, and I remember that, um, that one line in, in The Lion King where he says, Simba, you have forgotten who you are. You don't even know who you are. You don't know who you are. Yeah, you don't know who you are. He gets a moment. <laughs> Look hot. <laughs> Look hot. Like, Vincent, how you do that? <laughs> Vincent just nailed it. It was like, well, it's in there. You know, you see the brothers like celebrating the touchdown. And it's just boom, he's just going. But that's like goes all the way back to Africa. You know, that's our natural self. You know, so we forget who we are. And there's like, there's some good. And just knowing who you are as your natural self, right, right, you know, mm-hmm. and and I think what I think that kind of like that what we've forgotten contributes to the schizophrenic nature of our community, mm. right? Where there's just so many different voices coming at us, telling us what to do and how we should be, and we have to find a way to clear those, clear all of that madness out, and kind of look within, and that's what uh, Kamal Daoud says. Mm-hmm. He said he has a line in one of his poems where he says, when you, when you turn the ears inward, to listen to yourself. Right. You know, when do we have time to listen to ourselves? Right. We're caught up in this rat race. And that's why I was so drawn to poetry. Yeah. Even not knowing it as, as, as a teenage kid. Right. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm going to try to I figure out myself. I can have a voice. Myself. Yeah. I can have a voice. Yeah. You know, no one's telling me how to feel, what to do. If so, anything, you can have your words. You can you have, can, your, own, you can your, have words. your words, yeah. and then if you if you're true about your own words, yeah, that kind of that that helps you kind of like know what steps to take. A little right. bit of like, okay, I know a little bit of about what I like, and this is gonna lead me here, and a little bit truer about who I am. Yeah, well, right? words have power. And words have power. They they're very, and they can't become prophetic. In a way, right. when you write down some words or you write down like a to-do list or something's nature, then yeah. you find yourself doing those words. Um, did anybody say to you, yeah. you know, growing up, like, you need to, you need to concentrate on this because poetry's not going to pay or whatever? Right. Did, did you? You know, it's like. It's um, like, is that why you ended up into teaching where you're like, oh, I'm really a poet. And I was like, but yeah, I had to pay the bills. No, it's like, um, well, for me, it's like I was a poet and. and and like I, I mean, it was like a closet poet too. But once I um, started reading my poetry out, um, this you know, this is like before like doing anything with music. Mm-hmm. I, I was reading my poetry. That just felt natural for me to do that, and no one was going to tell me that I couldn't mm-hmm. or that I wasn't going to do it or try to change my mind about okay. it. I wasn't so did you have people like that in your life though? That I did, actually but, like you know, like. 
Vincent, you need to the stiff arm. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I don't know who they are. Right? <laughs> no, yeah. So yeah, once I got you, I mean that was like because you started young. You started that was that was something for me that um, I needed. I needed that as a catharsis. I needed that to to be clear about um, myself, right? And so when I read too, it's like it just feels right. You know, there's times it doesn't always feel the same way, right? Like, we don't always feel the same. We're not always happy. Yeah. You know, and sometimes if we're whatever mood that we're in, the poem can help express that. And you can move on. Yeah. Right? And so that that's actually it part helps. of it, too. It helps. That there's multiple dimensions to us. Right. We're not always just in one state of emotion. Right? That's and that, important. We have to be clear of that and... and I was like, well, why I don't feel this way? Well, you're in a different place in your life, and you have to um, just get clear about that and realize things are in a state of flux. Right. And so po- poetry was my way of just um, expressing myself, um, expressing my thoughts, and yeah, and being clear about who I am. Yeah, emotion is is serious, right? I think yeah, th- that's emotion. another thing that once you give words to that, you start to feel we pin down emotions in between happy, mm-hmm. sad. But then yeah, so there's much so fun. much in between, right? There's so much gray area in between happy and sad. And once you start putting words to those different stages, right. that you almost, it's almost like you are exploring what it is to be human. If you stop doing it, right, there's part of you that's going to die. Die. You know? Absolutely. And, and then you get into all other sorts of complications. Right. <laughs> right. Right. All other sorts of complications right. where that's just not healthy. It's not. For you and others. It's not. You die early. Right. You're right. You got, you get, you, you die you'd early. You be all pent up. You be, you know. And You'll be on edge. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> well, well I, t- I, t- I tell people all the time, I was like, finding out, finding out that you're an artist is like finding out that you're gay, right? Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh damn! I'm an artist, you know. <laughs> I can't help it, you know. I can't help it, <laughs> you know. And and it's it's the it's the truth, you know, because it's yeah. not you are doomed in in that moment that you say, I don't think that the world knows what to do with you. Not especially in America, North America, in yeah. our present form, it's like they they don't know what to do with you. It's like they can't commodify you. It's like you're not really, and it's almost like you you enter you enter. The monkhood, in a way, because right. you know. You see, you know, the thing is too was like the monastery. You're in the monastery. You're in the like, monastery. You're right? you like just need your robe, so you be like, okay, I have denounced all these different things right. out there. I know I'm not gonna be rich. I might get rich, you know, one day, maybe. You know, I might hit it like Nikki Giovanni. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, I might hit it like my Angelou. But most of the time, most poets they don't no, hit they it don't. like that. But let me say this though: when that substitute teacher said that to me that you were a poet, that was a blessing for me. Yeah, absolutely. Because that gave me clarity. Yeah. And how many brothers did I see, right, right um, just got caught up. When you say caught up, it means that they got caught in the flashy things. So they had the fresh rims for two years, and they were smelling. <laughs> they, they, they were, they were uh, selling the, the hub of rock and all of that, right. and then disappeared. Right. You know, how many of them did I see disappear? So it's been a blessing for well, me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it, it was a path. Out of the neighborhood in a way, not to leave the neighborhood, but to go on my journey. Right. So that when when I come back, I, that I could give, that I could give um, in teaching, in life, when I see people, 
you know, so that that I could give, you know, and it's everything that you just said, too. But when I I hadn't thought about all that, I didn't know what it was to be a poet. Well, you was and twelve so years old. Me, like, to me, I was like, I'm a poet. Yeah, I was just a kid. I'm a poet. I'm a shot to the world. I'm right, a poet. right, right. And I'm a and I'm a be a poet. Right, right. I didn't know that thing. Right, when you, you when know, older, like I didn't know that. I was, I'm a poet. <laughs> so it's a different thing. Yeah. yeah, but at the time, I'm just telling you how I felt, and that, yeah. it, it was a way for me not to get caught up. Going on my own well, you know, thing. like I said, yeah. words are important, right? And so when people can can come to you and give you your spot in the community right. and say, yes, you are this and and yeah. recognize that in you, that's a blessing. Yeah, it, it really it's is a, a blessing. blessing. too because I didn't feel like... Because it, it takes care of all that, you know, searching throughout your life. Also, too, it's like, I think what happens, too, is like people, It's you said context. If you're at so much pressure and you think that you have to win this thing, Right, whatever this, and it, and that's the problem too. Yeah. And I think that's the pressure that's out there. Yeah. So many people think that they have to win, but it's actually actually some of us who are brave enough to lose and still win. You know yeah. what I mean? To lose and, and not get caught well, up. Well, but you lose. Everything. Well, I think that's, that's that's you lose that mind frame and well, that you, mindset. Well, you lose you lose the trappings right of the the world that that everybody else judge as success, right? You lose that, where people are like, you know, you don't drive the fancy car. Right. You don't wear the, the fancy outfits. You know, you don't wear, you don't do all the stuff that, you don't have the fancy titles and right, right. all kind of stuff and accolades. And, and, but, right. You know, and I think that that's a struggle not only for all human beings, but specifically within our African-American community, this is also something to try to get to that common denominator of who we are, yeah. you know, and, and we each have to do it individually, but there's just a great relief. Yeah. You know, once you find out, yeah, when you came, when you come to that point. And even though know, we're not all going to arrive at the same place. Mm-hmm. Right. So do you want to share with us another poem? We are with um, Vincent Corbelt right here at Nicket Lounge um, Cafe on 11th and H. And this is the series Coffee and Poets. And um, this happens every third Sunday of the month. So you can come out and listen to Intelligent Conversation somewhat. (laughs) We we try to be intelligent anyway. All right. So, yeah, this is um, a piece. These are the pieces I wrote um, with the the birth of of my daughters. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to be present, you know, you know, my dad taught me a lot, uh, but, you know, my, my dad followed a, a traditional mode of you, you, you go to work, right? Right. And so we didn't necessarily, we didn't necessarily get a lot of time with him, uh, per se. And we didn't know any different. We were just happy to have a father. Yeah. But I, I wanted to be present in um, the lives of my daughter. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this piece um, called Fallopian Magic. Here we go. It's it's part of the experience. Feathered tongue flies out of mouth, hurling echoes of polyrhythmic sounds with smell of roasted peanuts, baritone breast to chest, tenor hands, octaves of relationships within a relationship, percussion, cussing lips, alto kisses, soprano smiles while the perfume of sex molders from our eyes as we embrace jazz. A hurricane of sugarcane juice in a cistern. 
built into a foundation of succulent mangoes and coconut, covered with passion fruit floors and lava-spuming guava jelly walls with pineapple ceiling and a bandana banana roof around afro-poofs of texture. Sperm and ovum clasped, summoning spirit, sculptured with embryonic fabric and wrapped with silk-smooth skin, fragile shapes embrace the fluffy cotton blanket of maternal darkness. There, walking by the windowsill in profile, hands akimbo and breath faint, Woman stand, woman stand with walloping shape and a protuberant navel perping, perking as a bulbous glass on top of boiling pot of coffee. You sleep on your side with your left shoulder tucked into a mattress and wake to contractions. Huddled by the tub, Karen and I soothe you with warm bathing water. In the hospital on white cotton sheets with contractions clanging, Amnion sack collapses, and the frantic bong of birth jams our ear canals with barbed wire. And yet, you come out of cacophony on mellifluous murmuring, the tender textures of baby skin through bleeding womb of colors, silk ripples of colostrum engorging your mother's breast, as you, a patch of butter sliding through a smoldering womb, appear with a portion of your head only the size of an orange. The rest of you ejected with patches of blood splattered across the hospital floor. Unbiblical cord stretching forth as a tendril. Guitar string of ancestral echoes. Guitar string of ancestral echoes. You came out bioluminescent from the depths of your mother, riding home on waves to the salty shores of arms, curled out as the lowercase g to tuck you into my chest. These eyes of mother glisten while purple baby cries and opens eyes of molasses, sucking oxygen through nostrils, sucking oxygen through nostrils. Mm. All right. So what I, what I did is, is um, my brother did the painting called Textures of Pregnancy, mm. and I told him kind of like what I wanted, and this is what he painted oh, here. Oh, very cool, yeah. And nice. um, so these are the poems that kind of just uh, document the birth uh, of my daughters. I also got the preface written by um, Charles Curtis Blackwell. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me give him a plug. Um, so I guess we're going to talk about a couple more things. We have about eight minutes left. So let's talk about uh, 916 Inc. and what you just got. Oh, okay. And what you and Marichelle have just finished. Okay. Um, the book and everything. Yes. Uh, we began working. At the Brick House, right? And uh, we'd like to thank the Brick House for opening their doors to us. Uh, but we had trouble trying to get kids to the Brick House. Mm. It's very difficult in an era where kids don't explore like they used to. I remember I used to walk everywhere mm. and go pretty much go a lot of different places um, with my parents' approval. Uh, so the kids, we had to go to the schools to get these kids. Mm -hmm. And once we were there... Um, we kind of, we had several workshops. We did a few hip-hop uh, workshops that Marisol headed. And uh, Marisol's in the audience. Let's give him a <laughs> Yeah, so we did, um, we did, we did a few um, workshops um, with hip-hop. Mm -hmm. And then also I, I did some workshops on the, on the haiku, on, on, on brevity, right? On this getting to the exact words of what you wanted to say. We also did 
question workshop, which was based on um, Pablo Neruda has a book, his last book that he wrote. It's all written in questions. And, you know, just beautiful, poetic questions. Mm -hmm. And we had the kids um, read some of that and then write their own questions. And and their work is uh, in the book. And we are having a reading at at James Rudder around 530 uh, this Tuesday, uh, November 18th. Yeah. And so um, we'll... um, have the students uh, read their work. And I think it's a good thing, too, uh, for them to be able to explore their own thoughts, their own emotions at such a young age. Yeah, it's important. You know, it's important, especially there's so much going on yeah. at that middle school level. Right, right. Yeah. There is. Um, also, okay, so let's talk about Jive Turkey. Oh, it's Jive On. Jive on. <laughs> I want to jive, jive, yeah, jive, jive on. on. <laughs> yeah. So when did Jive Turkey start? Okay. And what was the idea behind Jive Turkey? Okay. And, yeah, so yeah, to the, give, us, give us the history, because I know it's been going on for a yeah. while. So the, the one thing we got to do is um, we got to get Lawrence to illustrate a Jive Turkey um, booklet, you know. So I'm going to say that right now. That's an idea. I would love to work with Lawrence on that. But here's the idea. I um, was taking a class, and um, I, you know, this was uh, in Davis, and I had taken an African-American folklore class, and I learned about Burr Rabbit, and I had taken a Native American class, and I learned about Coyote. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, who's the contemporary trickster? Uh, for the urban setting, and I said that, that well, that's going to be Jive Turkey. Right. And so at that time, um, I, I had created this group called the Israel Writers and Artists Collective. So when was this? When was this? Give us a year. Yeah, this was. Um, we're looking at the mid '90s. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what we did is is that we formed this group, and we performed our work at garage sales, and we would meet once a week, and we would do a writers' workshop. And in one of the workshop, I said, okay. There's a new trickster. His name is Jive Turkey, and we're going to write stories about Jive Turkey okay. and, and learn from, from, from Jive Turkey's experiences. And so we're still in the evolution of that okay. That's as cool, well. Though. So um, the first thing we came out with a, bo- uh, with a, with a booklet called, um, uh, what was it, the, the Greyhound Papers. Right, yeah, it's called, <laughs> it's called the Greyhound Papers. And so okay. we had uh, Phil Govard uh, wrote in that, Rob Lozano, Mario Ellis Hill, Angelo Williams, myself, right? Was and Mariana in that one? What's Mariana, it? Souza, yeah, yeah. as well. So, yeah, Mariana and everyone has all um, been a part of that, and I'd love to continue that and maybe yeah. do something visual with my man ac- across the way right here. It would be, I think it would be nice. <laughs> it would be you know, nice. Would be I, nice. I like little, that. Yeah, I like that. Thing. Yeah, I like that concept. It was a great concept. Yeah, I he had cranberry sauce. So Lawrence kind of naturally added. I had to two it. jive turkey pieces. Yes, yeah, I had yeah two cranberry pieces. sauce is a piece. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, character he added. Mario added um, Mercedes Brown. Uh-huh. So people have been adding different characters into the jive turkey. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I did jive turkey jerky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. yeah, yeah, it was very cool. We're gonna end out on a strong note. Read us a piece. Um, and and then we're going to call it the night. Okay. Um, since I already have this out, this is a piece called The Dairy Maid, and it was just my, you know, just watching uh, Mother and Child. So here it is, the, the Dairy Maid. There on the bench, under the hot June sky, which waits for clouds, 
You sit with your feet flat against the ground, patches of earth breathing grass, sparse blades of green. Beneath, earthworms dig into moist soil, hiding from the scathing sun while regiments of ants crawl on the part surface. A deciduous tree thick with leaves dripping with waves of shade. Birds shoot out of canopies. Towards the distant hills, scribbled beneath blue skies, basking in the shade with your infant cuddled up into your arms, suckling scoops of cool vanilla ice cream from your breast through raisin nipples, butterscotch or raspberry chocolate, suckling double scoops of coconut chunks with pineapple ice cream even. Soon sleep will dandle her silent there, tucked in your arms. All right. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing is, is that for me, it's this, it was just such a natural thing. And I know that there's problems with that, but I really don't, you know, see why there has to be. I think it's, it's a natural thing for a mother to breastfeed her child. Mm. Yeah. And I think it shows a lack of, um, a lack of maturity in our culture that we're still in like a middle school uh, teenage mindset in our culture about things like that. Well, you know, it it goes back to commodification again. They can't sell it, you know. That's right. You know, so (laughs) the thing about it is that, you know, if if they're selling bikinis or whatever, breasts is okay. If you're selling something... Breast is okay. If you're selling a car, breast is okay. But you can't. But if you're feeding your child, then it's not. They can't sell. You're not. You, you know. You're not. You know. You're not selling it to your child, so you can't really commodify that. So it must be wrong. Anything that you can't commodify right. must be wrong in some way. You know. Yeah, but it, it has something to do with that. It's but then it also goes back to Thanksgiving again, because when yeah. they came over, when the Puritans came over and they saw the Pequot, the Poconowit, and the Narragansett. These women were openly in public breastfeeding their children, mm-hmm. and they were not ashamed of their bodies. And um, they were offended by the bodies of the, of the Native people as yeah. well. Yeah. And, um, but they were fine just the way they were. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were it's fine a, just the way they were. It's, it's just amazing to me. You yeah, know? they it's were amazing. fine just the way they were. Right. Your body's your body. Everybody has one. You know, so it doesn't have to be commodified. I don't know. Right. It, it don't have to, but you just have everybody has a body, you know. So it just makes his craziness to me that. Right. Well, anyway, we're gonna get on those. That's a that's yeah. another podcast. That's another. <laughs> um, let's not get on um, left corner pocket. Lawrence is he's putting the pool the pool balls in there. Don't hit that eight ball. Huh? That's what he's saying. He he doesn't want to hit the eight ball on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, that's yeah. go off on the deep end. That's another. That's a. That's another podcast. <laughs> so, um, so yes. So once again, all right. Uh, we well, are thank you for having me. Sir. We are Appreciate sitting. It. We are sitting here with Vincent Corbell, Corbell, and um, he has graced our microphones. He was supposed to ha- interview somebody today, but that's we right. we did a um, a judo move on you guys, and <laughs> and I am interviewing him. It's kind of like a Twilight Zone kind of thing. Yeah, uh, and we are located here on 11th and 8th Street at the Nicket Coffee Cafe, and you can come down anytime and order something. It's a really great cafe, and uh, my name is Insa. I'm your host for this evening, mm-hmm. and that has been Coffee and Poets. Thank you. <laughs>